Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. All right, so we're doing something a little weird here. Needless to say, reading a comic book is kind of a nutty way. Or reading it out loud. Reading it out loud in front of others, somewhat odd. However, we're going to endeavor to do just that for your uh, educational (laughs) edification or something like that. Yes, so what we're going to do is... uh, read the first few pages that start our story off and what we're going to project um, and then I guess sort of move along in the slideshow are the finished pages uh, but without the lettering, without the dialogue. There is lettering and dialogue in the book so don't worry about that. Um, But just to give it a little dramatic uh, uh, license for ourselves. Uh, Now we've done this before and we had a cat, literally a cast of three. (laughs) So to do various voices but now tonight we only, uh, Kristen will do the various voices, uh, and I will do the uh, omniscient um, narration. And, and if anybody's ever written a comic or a script, a script a comic script is somewhat different. But um, as you'll see, uh, what I'm going to be reading are uh, uh, essentially the panel descriptions that we gave to the artist, uh, and uh, and like that. Like that, so it'll go a little something like this. There you go. All right. <clears throat> Book one, I love living in the city. Page one, panel one, medium interior shot inside performer's half of a peat booth. The shutter is open and we see Roxy from behind. She is standing, dressed in bra, panties and stockings, phone receiver in one hand, a young, nervous yuppie with glasses sits on the customer's side, his tie loose. He is also holding a receiver to his ear. Roxy. Hi, honey. First time. Yuppie. Uh, yeah. Panel two. Close on Roxy as she slips one bra strap off her shoulder. She is smiling coyly. All right, let me explain how things work around here. For your tokens, you get a live new girl. Panel three. Tight shot on Roxy's face and small breasts as she slips out of her bra. I'm live. Panel four, tight shot on Roxy's ass as she slides her panties down. I'm nude. Panel five, medium, back to medium shot, Roxy from behind again, now naked except for stockings and heels. The yuppie is staring at her exposed crotch like a dog focused on a ball about to be thrown. But that's it. You want a real show, you gotta be a little bit more generous. Very yes. well, people. <laughs> there we go. Oh, look at that. Geniuses. 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 Perfect. Page two. Splash page. Establishing shot. Times Square. Christmas Eve, 1986. This is the Deuce, an urban free fire zone of street hawkers, 
lyric rhyme houses, salacious triple X movie marquees, peep shows, and greasy spoons. Dirty snow and ice are on the ground with the stuff in low banks up against the buildings. There are sorry looking Christmas decorations with missing bulbs hanging from lampposts. There's a little aside here where we give some Google stuff to the, uh, to the artists who are looking up for references. We are, uh, we are bundled up, we see bundled up people walking. We can't see Dirty Dick Durbin in this panel, but hear him as he runs for his life. Caption, Times Square, Eve, 1986. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yes. Page three. Panel one. Close on a scared, dirty dick as he runs, looking back at his pursuers off panel. He is in his trademark costume and has his camera rig strapped onto his back. Panel two. Back in the peak booth. Close shot of Roxy's hand, sliding a piece of paper folded the long way into the vertical crack between the window glass and the frame. The yuppie's unsure face is visible on the other side, looking down at the paper with a slight frown. Five for a spread, ten for a finger, twenty for a dildo. Just slip the cash right in here, baby. Panel three. Tight shot on the yuppie's hand in the foreground as he slides a ten-dollar bill into the into onto into the folded paper. Roxy's face is visible on the other side of the glass in the background, lit up with a cat wave a canary smile. Yuppie. Uh, right. Oh, uh, okay. Roxy, thank you, honey. Panel four. Extreme close-on shot of a Puerto Rican teen in layers of clothing, wool cap on his head, sitting on a plastic milk crate against the wall. Using regular wooden drumsticks, he's knocking out a tune on the upturned bottom of a large plastic bucket. Pack it up, pack it up, pack it up. <laughs> Panel five, medium shot as Dirty Dick trips over the kid drumming. The bucket and a couple of dollar bills and change in a coffee can fly everywhere. Dirty Dick's camera rig breaks, coming apart. The kid reacts before he realizes it's a Dirty Dick. The devil! Page four, panel one. Close on shot, customer side of the booth. The POV is from behind and slightly over the yuppie's head and quaking shoulders. Roxy sits up on her stool with her legs spread open, a high-heeled shoe on each side of the window. She has one hand between her legs and a look of supreme boredom on her face. Yuppie's tie is flipped up over one shoulder so he won't stay there. And he has the phone receiver jammed between his ear and shoulder. His head is blocking a hardcore view. Yuppie. Yeah, you like that, don't you, dirty little whore? <sighs> Panel two. Medium shot as Dirty Dick is on his feet. His busted up camera rig on the sidewalk. He's looking back toward his pursuers off panel. The kid is on a knee, gathering up his money. He looks over at Dirty Dick. Kid. Dirty Dick? Man, I love your show. Well, where are you going? Panel three, medium shot. Side view angle of Dirty Dick sands his rig, running for his life again. He passes a fat, dirty bum, lifting his shirt, tongue on his lips as he squeezes one of his substantial man boobs. Hey, Dick. 
Why don't you film this action? Panel four, medium shot. Pete land interior. The yuppie is hightailing it away from the boot, face flushed and sweaty, tie still up over one shoulder. Roxy has pushed her curtain partially open and is leaning out of her side of the booth. The curtain is covering her nude body. Maintenance! Page five, panel one. Close down angle shot of a thrown away tabloid newspaper, the New York Mirror, styled after the New York Post, lying on the sidewalk. It's a black and white shot of Simon Wynn, a politically connected real estate developer who is getting much ink as he tops redeveloping Times Square. <laughs> who knew? In this shot, <clears throat> it is a smiling wit. In this shot, is a smiling wit is in a suit with a hard hat on and holding a shovel. The caption reads, Simon Wint breaks ground. Panel two, slightly pulled back shot of the same front page, shifted focus. Headline reads, prep school honor students slain in Central Park. The black and white photo is of cops and police tape in the park. A smaller inset photo shows a headshot of a beautiful smiling blonde in a prep school uniform. A drop of bird shit splatters part of the wording. Panel three. Same shot as previous panel, only now two pairs of feet are visible standing on the newspaper. One set is sturdy work boots and the other in wet, salt splattered dress shoes. One of the dress shoes is standing on the paper. The shoes and the feet in them belong to Ray and Benny, the two gentlemen chasing Dirty Dick. Ray, off panel. We lost them. Benny, off panel. We'll get them. Panel four. Medium exterior shot as Dirty Dick ducks in the peat plant, the emporium of peat booths seen on page one. The name of the joint is an ostentatious plastic lettering lined in neon above the entrance. A couple of the letters are cocked. An old alky in a ratty, disheveled Santa costume is coming out as Dick blows past him. His zipper is down, his expression blurry-eyed and hostile. God, son of a bitch. <laughs> Page six, panel one. Close on shot is Dirty Dick wearing fingerless gloves, pulls a VHS cassette tape from inside his jacket. Shit, shit, shit. Medium shot is Dirty Dick, the tape in one hand is at the narrow passageway between booths. He rushes past Fabrice with his rollaway mop and bucket, who has just swabbed out Roxy's booth. There's a large prominent scar on his face and neck. A lit cigarette dangles from the corner of his mouth. Sir Zach, move, goddammit! Fabrice, I'm not even gonna attempt the Creole. Let's just go with the English caption. Fuck you, man. <laughs> Panel three, medium shot is a hairy, dirty ditch. It crashes into the customer side of Roxy's booth. The POV is from within Roxy's side. The shutter is still up from the yuppies left over time. Roxy reacts, standing from her stool, holding her phone receiver in her hand and motioning with her other hand for him to pick up his receiver. She is still topless, but has put on a G-string, one side pulled up higher than the other to indicate she, she was interrupted while dressing. Roxy, where's the fire, Dick? In your pants? Panel four, medium shot. 
PO, the POV is from the customer side of the cramped space. We can see Roxy standing in her booth, the receiver still in her hand but held away from her face. She watches the frantic, dirty dick down on one knee beside the bench seat, which is ripped and has some padding sticking out. He's shoving the tape into the padding of the torn side. She taps on the glass with her finger to catch his attention, but he can't hear her on his side unless he uses the phone. Panel five, close on Dirty Dick talking on the phone, uh, on the on the booth phone to Roxy. His expression is anxious, eyes on the door. Dirty Dick, listen to me, Roxy. You didn't see nothing. I'll be back for some. Don't fuck with it, Roxy. Sure thing, DD. Page seven. Panel one. Medium sized Dirty Dick casts a taciturn Fabrice who is wringing out his mop and the squeezer attached to his bucket. His cigarette has burned down, long ash still clinging to the end. AJ stands near Fabrice, holding a, a cell phone, uh, cone of car a cellophane cone of carnation. She appears boyish in style and body language, but the clearly defined breasts visible beneath her t-shirt give her away. AJ, what's with him? Can't face pussy without his camera? Fabrice, what do I care? Panel 2. Close on shot. Standing in front of a neighborhood booth is Maritza, an emaciated junkie with dead eyes. Dirty Dick is rushing past her on his way out of the joint. She looks straight ahead as she delivers her can come on to any warm body. Maritza. Fist fucking, butt fucking, dildo show right here. Fist fucking, butt fucking, dildo show. <laughs> Panel 3. Exterior medium shot as Dirty Dick runs down a trash-strewn side street. A junkie in a Yankees cap is on the knob, sitting with his back against the wall in the dirty snow. <laughs> Panel 4. Back inside Peatland, medium shot of AJ standing, talking with a seated Aisha on a tall stool in front of her open booth. AJ hands her the flowers. AJ is blushing, looking down. Aisha is smiling. AJ, uh, I, uh, I, I saw these and I thought, well, Aisha, thank you, AJ. You around later? Panel five, Vince is sitting behind the token counter. He's pointing at AJ off panel. Vince, beat it, AJ. Panel six, tight two shot of AJ and Aisha. AJ, I, uh, I got this thing, but Maybe after? Aisha, with your brothers, I bet. Why are you letting them drag you down, baby? Vince, I said get out of here, will ya? You're scaring off the customers. Page eight, panel one. Close on AJ as she grabs her crotch. Eat me, Vince. Panel two, medium shot back out on the streets. For the first time, we see the two goons, Vinny and Ray. The former in a flashy suit, top coat, and the previously mentioned dress shoes, and the latter in a more casual bomber jacket, jeans, and boots. Benny is looking off and is tapping Ray with the back of his hand as he spots Dirty Dick off panel. Benny, there goes that fucking mook. Panel three, medium up angle shot from the bottom of concrete steps as Dirty Dick rushes down them to the subway. He's pushing a middle-aged woman out of his way who hits him with her pocketbook. Middle-aged woman. Hey, watch it, pervert! Panel four. 
medium shot on the mostly deserted platform as the two thugs have caught up Dirty Dick. They dwarf him in both height and dirt. He's trying to pull away from them as they grab him. Dirty Dick has his back to and is near the edge of the platform. The goons want him alive to beat, the, beat him and make him talk, seeking the object he's hidden. A small scattering of people are nearby. They all deliberately look the other way, unwilling to get involved. Right. Come here, you. That's what Let me go. Help! Help! Betty, shut the fuck up, scumbag. You ain't going nowhere. Panel 5. Close on down angle shot as an open mouthed dirty dick slips from their grasp. Only he's falling backward off the platform onto the tracks. We can see an open, grasping hand of one of the goons reaching for him. Benny. Oh shit! Ray, grab him! Panel 6. Close on shot of approaching lead subway car as the shocked engineer applies the brakes, but it's going to be too damn late. Oh my god! <laughs> Page 9, panel 1. Medium shot, largest panel as the subway's cars run over. Dirty Dick. Uh, panel two. <laughs> medium. <laughs> panel two. Medium frontal, slightly down angle shot, looking on the platform as people react. Some horrified, some annoyed, some indifferent. The goons, Ray and Benny, are running away behind them. Somebody stop them! Go for it, Charlie fucking Bronson. There you go. Hey. So there you have the beginnings of uh, of um, well, a story that has several different layers, but uh, but it's set in motion uh, as, as we as we've seen from uh, this uh, this tape of Dirty Dixon and what's on the tape. Absolutely, and one of the things that was so crucial to me working on this project was that I have never seen the peep boots that I worked in represented in film or comics or any fictional medium the way that they really were, the way that we experienced them. And all of the stories that you see about women like this, they're almost invariably told from the other side of the glass, from the customer side of the glass. Yeah, and, and I really wanted to kind of reverse that angle and talk about the experiences of women like me who, who really worked in places like this. And it's just funny to to read out loud of that, that, oh, this fucking buff <laughs> It's like when you get a jingle from a fast food place in your head because you work there, that's how I felt after a long shift of having to listen to this woman with this little sing-song <laughs> chant. It was almost zen after a certain point, you know. But uh, yeah, all those little details, and, and that stuff's all gone now, you know. And so in a weird way, it's almost like we're, we're historians, like trying to, you know, preserve lost, Civilizations, you know, for the future. And, uh, and we should, you know, we've given them praise uh, uh, in our various interviews. But uh, uh, Andrea Camerini, the uh, young uh, Italian, Italian like he's in Italy, Italian artist who uh, who drew the book. Who, as far as I know, I don't think he's ever been in the states. No, no, and he's twelve, you right, know, right, which right, is right. like unbelievable. Right, you know, right. so I. <laughs> I, I, I earned the nickname the G-string Nazi during this project because I kept saying, no, 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 hype that G-string. It's got to come all the way up to the rib cage. It's the 80s for Christ's sake. Pull it up, pull it up, pull it up. That's it. 
but we gave them, a, a, you know, it's a great benefit of, of course, now the, the internet and Google and, and also different books and stuff. So we gave them a lot of different uh, visual references and, and, and if he had a question or, or something wasn't, wasn't clear, he would always talk about it with us or ask us a question and really, he, he, I mean, just rem it's just a remarkable job that he did on the book. Well, and it's funny too because, I mean, I'm not an artist. Yeah, and not a particularly uh, skilled at visual representation type person. I had to draw maps of the Pete Booth facility, what it was like. Because every time you see that sort of thing in a film, it's like a giant room with like all the, it's like, no, no, this is like a phone booth. You know, I mean, it's like seriously, like you could touch both ways whenever you're there. And, and, I, and I really, it was important to me to make sure that that stuff was accurate, the way that we would fold the paper to get tips, because you technically weren't supposed to do that, but we could slip that paper in between the frame of the glass and get guys to put money in there and pull it through. All those little kind of workaday details, you know, I just sort of wanted to pass that stuff on because I'd never seen it represented before. All right, we've stunned him in this mission. <laughs> that happens That's with me right. a lot. Right. I, yeah. Yeah. What can I say? <laughs> Put in ugly George. And, and I had to put in ugly George. Now, I don't know if any of you guys in the audience are New Yorkers, but when I was growing up in this area, we had this guy. Anybody who's old enough to remember public access, <laughs> public access television, whether you're out here in LA or wherever you're at, there was always crazy, weird local <laughs> hosts that were doing strange, wacky programming. And ugly George would go on. And he, he was like the original Girls Going Wild guy. Right, right. So he would wear this like silver, like, oh, little dolphin shorts. And, you know, he had this gigantic camera rig that he would wear on his back. And he'd walk around the Midtown Manhattan area and try to talk girls into showing their tits. You know, and this was like way, way back in the day. And, and I guess, you know, now in the days of YouTube, you know, you can Google Ugly George and see. Because he's, he's still around. He's still he's around. Still Bless his little yeah, silver spandex heart. You know, but he was, and Al Goldstein, Al of Goldstein. course, is another yeah. New York original from Screw Magazine, you know, who really was kind of a, a pioneer of smut in yeah. a lot of ways. And, and, I, and Al Goldstein type makes a, makes a cameo appearance in the, in the story. Well, th we did this a lot because, I mean, obviously, we didn't want to actually write about Ugly George because Ugly George was not killed and pushed in front of the subway. He's still with us, you know, and certain real estate moguls from the 80s are also still with us. Who oh, no. we, we have a version of that person who shall not be named That's also right. in our comic, you know, because at the time that we wrote it, you know, we said, okay, well, we need a kind of a shifty right. real estate guy. Right. It's 1986. Right. Who can we base that character this on? This asshole will never be president. <laughs> There's no way. No, no, way. Way. no way. No way. But, but, but again, that was part of it also. It's just, you know, I, I wanted to bring memories back to people who were from that time period and then also share unfamiliar stuff with the younger generation. Oh, I just, I think you kind of answered it, but uh, I'm a native Angelino, I really am not familiar with this, but where, like, exactly in New York did this take place? Was it all over, or was it just a certain area? Well, well there were, there were, yeah, there were these types of, of places somewhat far from, but they tended to cluster around the Times Square area, which is where I grew up. I grew up on 45th Street and 9th Avenue, which is, like, a little bit to the west, you know, of Times Square. So, yeah, it was kind of like, uh, 
most cities yeah. develop like a sort of a combat zone or a red zone red or red light district. Yeah, so it was, it was basically that. You know, the same, I mean, it used to be the same, um, you know, downtown on, on, on Main Street, you know, uh, I guess really between like, uh, I suppose between Olympic, not even Olympic, I think even probably a little, a little to the north of Olympic, but really, uh, maybe it's, maybe that's around 8th, there used to be a whole spread of, um, of uh, what do you call them, porno shops, they're right there on, on Main, uh, kind of going towards City Hall. Well, and hey, what about the Ivar Theater? The Ivar, right. The Ivar Theater, yes, indeed. That's right, that's right. And I guess, and then somebody just did a, uh, was something in the newspaper the other day, or maybe it was on radio, aren't there like, aren't there like, there's like one Pussycat Theater left? And there's one, there's like a gay grind, grind out. Yeah, there's theater. the one on Santa Monica. Yeah. Which used to be a pussycat, now it's called something different. Tomcat, I think it is. Uh, yeah. Tomcat. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that, you know, like, why would you want to leave your house? Right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you have your phone. Well, but and apparently some perverts still do want to leave their house because uh, they, they, they uh, it was a woman who did the piece and, and she was talking about that. I, guess, I think both Pussycat theaters, both theaters are all in Santa Monica, one into the other, as it were, and uh, and and the one more toward downtown, more toward the east part, um, still has like uh, you know dirty old guys in, in rain. Okay, Gary, I'm 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 gonna pitch this right now. This is a million dollar idea. You ready for this? Yeah, We're gonna do yeah, this yeah. right now. Yeah. Invest all your money right now, and everybody here. Put your money in, this is what we're gonna do, okay? <laughs> Artisanal analog masturbation nodes. Okay. That and we're gonna have all the hipster crowd. Yeah, that's right. That's and we're gonna right. get in and we're gonna see, oh see, you know that that iPhone stuff, that's not as good. This is the this, real yeah, that's thing. Right. That's right. That's right. You know, we're gonna have like we're gonna bring in dirt. Especially, you know, <laughs> oh god, because the you know the maintenance guys, Fabrice, is, is our, our maintenance guy, and it's actually based on a real guy that used to work in the booth. I I was always fascinated by this huge scar that he had, but he was so distant, I could never really start a conversation with him. But in our story, in our story, we give him a story. We give we him give a backstory. backstory. We give him a backstory. Him a backstory. But so, how well I remember, you know, that their way of cleaning in these booths was after the gentleman was finished with his enjoyment of the scenario, and then he would leave, and in would come Fabrice or whoever with a mop and a rolling bucket, and he would just lift the mop up and swab across the glass, and, and that was the same water for the whole ship. <laughs> I mean, it was, there was ammonia in there, and that ammonia, let me tell you, that would, you know, <laughs> Strip the enamel off your teeth, but yeah, it was uh, it was low tech. It was, but I'm telling you, this is this is my new pitch. There you go. Low tech wanking. It's a new <laughs> hot thing. New hot thing. That's right. That's it. That's right. After your uh, avocado toast. That's right. That's right. I would not eat avocado toast. Anymore. In fact, you know we. <laughs> I did promise. I did promise a filthy anecdote, so I will share a, a slightly. Slightly softened around the edges version of one of my favorite clients that I used to have used to come in, in the booths, who was known to all of us as the pizza man. And he would come in on his lunch hour to see the ladies, and he would bring a slice of pizza and a coke with Yikes. ice. Yikes. And it's New York, alright, so we're talking pizza. I mean, this is a slice, you know what I'm saying? 
So he would come in and he would say, I'm going to put on a show for you. <laughs> okay, so, you know, hey, that's, that's a different little twist for me to break, you know. Have at it there, pal. So, he proceeded to have intimate relationship with the pizza. Yikes. Again, it's a New York slice here, so it's, you know. <laughs> And he's just going at this thing. He's just having a blast. He's having the best time ever. And he keeps saying, it feels just like a pussy. <laughs> now, I mean, I don't know what kind of pussy this guy's had that felt like a slice of pizza. <laughs> but I, I gotta say, that's potentially problematic. You know, if you see that cheese, that's maybe not a good thing. Maybe not a good thing. But yeah, so... So actually you should be happy we didn't include this scene <laughs> uh, in a pizza. You have to draw. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was too much to explain to Oh that. my uh, God. Way, way and there's way more, but I will spare you. But, <laughs> but no, it was a crazy thing where guys would, guys would come in their lunch hour. I mean, like, the afternoon was one of our busiest shifts. You know, because you would get all these yuppies. You know, that's the trick of putting the tie up over their shoulder. You know, and to this day, when I see a guy walking down the street with his tie up over his shoulder, I think, ah, I know what you've been up to. You were, you, you had a question. I was going to ask how your partnership got started, and like, let's just specific. I don't know if you collaborated on other things before this. No, no. Your first one, so where was the genesis of that idea, and what did you each bring to the project? Well. As, as Chris is talking about, right? This is based on her her actual experience, and, and Chris had written a spec script. Um, there's, a, there's a longer story, right? Because now you got anyway. Anyway, Chris wrote a spec script, and several of us read it, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, so, and we gave her some ideas and some notes or whatever, and uh, somehow or another, though. But then Charles, uh, our guy who runs Hard Case Crime, then made the deal with Titan for the comics line. And he said, you know, like, we love working with you. You got any comic ideas? And I said, funny, you should mention. So then I run real quick over to Cameron. Oh my God, Cameron, I don't know how to write a comic. What am I going to do? Can you help me? And he did. Yeah, we did. So it, it was, it was um, and we've now since we're working on another project, which may or may not see the light of day. I guess at some point it'll see the light. Some point, theoretically. Yeah, but, but it turned out to be, um, I think it helped that we, we met and, and even though you know we had the, the, the script that she had already written that I had read to sort of as a launching pad, we also knew that, that we had to change things in terms of making it a comic book and making it a miniseries. Oh yeah, and it had to be pared down. I mean, right. you know, the thing that is interesting to me about this as a concept is that it's essentially the naked city. That's right. You know, there's eight million stories. I mean, you have a girl in every booth. You have dozens of customers coming through every day, you know, and so the you can tell all those different stories of all those different people. So, so there's two other stories that were also prominent in New York: the the Preppy murder uh, case, and of course then the Central Park Five, uh, which also, not coincidentally, also involves the uh, the orange one, uh, who's, who's yet to ever let that go, despite DNA evidence, despite whatever. Uh, so, uh, so we kind of knew we went we. We kind of wanted to get at these various um, subplots, if you will, or levels really of the city, and also the idea of also gentrification is lurking there too. 
Uh, and and yet, and, and we first thought we were going to have six issues to be able to do that, but they told us, well, you're only, only going to give you five. Uh, so then, you know, now you got to cut it down even more, or then you got to try to figure out, you know, you, and, and, of course, and with a comic, you know, the main point of a comic book is, as you, as you can see, you put a lot more work, or you put a lot more words into actually the descriptions you give to the artist than your actual dialogue. Yeah, no, it's pack and a pack and a pack. And right, that's, right. All that's all you got. But because, you know, part of our job is somehow or another, like in a film script, is to, is to par down the dialogue to the essence, to give you some sense of the character, to give you some sense of pace and movement. But also, our, our problem is, unlike the film, we can't get in the way of the pictures. You can't, you, you can't have, I mean, you can have heavy dialogue. I mean, there are, you know, there are some comics writers who do that, and they'll break up a page in the 19 headshot, uh, not to call names. But anyway, but, and, which is fine. I mean, I think you can do some of that some of the time. I think some of the, some of the time you really shouldn't do that. Because I really think, in a comic book, you know, the artist is a storyteller, too. And, and the fact that we had such a great artist who really could interpret what we, what we were talking about, yeah. Uh, you know, and make it and make it work and make it and make it come alive. And I actually I was surprised too. I actually thought that sometimes we were getting too much dialogue, and then I would, I would read the you know the the proofs of the page. And I would think, oh no, this is fine because you know, we, we yeah yeah it's moving along. It, it was so hard for me though because I love dialogue. That's like my superpower, you know. And I sort of come out of that like film noir like snappy patter. I love that stuff, but you just you can't have that. You know, because you get, you get to move on. You got to get on to the next panel. You got to get on to the next action. Right. Right. And and that was that was the hardest. It was a steep learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. Or right, sometimes in the page we might you know you might we might uh, essentially cut from one scene to go somewhere else and then come back to that you know to that other scene in the in the next page. So all those things you got to think about. And of course the the other addictive in comics is. You know, you always try to give them something at the end of the page that's going to make them flip the page, you know, flip to the next page. Yeah, and I mean, when you don't, I mean, obviously, if you're like, like you do, Graham, if you are writing and drawing at the same time, you're covered. But like, it was very difficult also for me to kind of, you know, I mean, I might be a little bit of a control freak. <laughs> Maybe just a little. Just putting that out there, a little bit, tiny bit, tiny bit. But these are real places. I mean, these are real. Places like based on real people, based on places where I've been, you know. I mean, the apartment that she lives in, in my mind, is you know my mother's neighbor's apartment. I mean, it's a real apartment, and then it comes out and it's not that. Hmm. And it's like you, there's nothing wrong with the way it's done, but it's not mine. Yeah. And, and that's a process. You kind of have to let go of of the things that that you imagine in your own mind. When you're just writing a novel by yourself, that's it. Right. You're in the room, every, you're in charge of everything. But that's here, right. you know, not only was I working with another writer, I was also working with multiple editors, right. you know, who all had to have, you know, various input. feedback, that's input, right. you know, and then, and then an artist who wasn't alive at this time period and didn't really understand a lot of the vintage aspects, you know. But the reason why we went with Andrea, we, we had a choice of a bunch of different artists and you know, we had a lot of, of great options, guys that were just tremendously talented. But the reason why I went with, with Andrea was because he does really realistic, gritty street scenes that are believable, like a real street. Because, you know, our, our second choice was also just tremendously talented, but he had a kind of a film noir, yeah. Sin City, like, 
like set bound. Yeah, it was a little too on the nose. Too, or too yeah. fantastical. Right. Like right. it was too much of like an imaginary city. Yeah. You know, and I don't want an imaginary city. Like if, you know, if I say that they're at the Howard Johnson's on 8th Avenue and 47th Street, that's where they fucking are. You know, they're not in some neon lit no, fantasy land of a soundstage right. somewhere with rain outside the imaginary window. Right. You know, so, so I think that was... The fact that he so perfectly captured the feel of my city, a city that's gone now, that no longer exists, I was willing to give more leeway in other areas where I could have been more of a pain in the ass and I wasn't. <laughs> is this all of your three to five issues, or is this the first of... No, that's all. That's it, that's the five that's issues. That's it, that's the five issues. issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's also uh, ephemera. Yeah. There's like weird in-between stuff and right. little interview essay, strange little old right. pictures, that kind of thing. Yes? This may be a stab in the dark, but um, stab away, huh? I really liked some criticism this woman did in all places in the New Republic, and I think her name is Catherine. It starts with an S, and she's written prostitutes laundry. And she criticized the Ariel Levy book, which actually is a very good book, but her criticism was right on the nose. And I've been asked to write a review, and I'm trying to get a feel for, for how I'm coming at things, and I want to hear you. Okay. Um, this criticism of Levy said, well, here's feminism with all this choice, and isn't it tragic how things turn out when you've got the whole world open to you? And it was sort of it was sort of a bitter piece, but I thought, here's a woman. She's worked as a prostitute. She didn't have tremendous advantages. She's made pretty good. Uh, she's taken good root with her life and, and got some strong options working for her. She didn't have choice. And um, and hearing her criticism really did something for me. You know, I mean, you could see it as a little bitter, but at the same time, I thought. She was right. I just thought deeply she was right. Okay, so what's your question? So, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm working like a jazz musician because I'm trying to riff where I feel my feminism comes from. And coming from academia, I hear a lot of stories that Sweden outlawed mm. prostitution because of the trafficking um, activity connected by data um, and because of capitalism's imbalance in prostitution that the woman is always going to be in a lesser service, servile position. Um, so, I mean, you're out there in the trenches. You're working... So to speak. Yeah. And you're working um, for yourself. You seem very confident in what you do. And meanwhile, there's a lot of literary theory and art and a lot of political activity regarding women circling around you. Where do you weigh in? How do you see things? What gets your job? You know, I'm just wondering how you are coming at this because I want to hear, you know, you're an independent woman. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the way I see it is that, you know, work is always going to work for some people and not for others. And that, you know, uh, I, not to get off the subject of people in, but I had a, a novel that I wrote that was about a woman who worked in the adult film industry, and the sequel to that novel was set in the MMA world. And I found a really strong uh, connection between the notion of selling women's bodies and the notion of selling men's bodies. For example, in Gary's novel, The Juke, you know, you have a character who has essentially, you know, 
gone through what a lot of women go through where you don't have anything to offer except your body. That's the only thing you have to sell. You know, and so you either sell it for sex or you sell it for sport. Mm. You know, but that there's a that there's a commonality there. But at the same time, there are athletes who are incredibly happy, who've had a great life and they haven't had any problems and they've gone on to like inspire generations of youth and everything's hunky-dory and there's guys like protagonist of the juke who maybe didn't have it so well who did, didn't work out so well for them and they're like a million fighters that i met who you know they're you know they're struggling and so i think that it is true that there are factors that affect women that are unique to us you know, in our place in the world and society around us and the expectations of what we are and what we're supposed to provide, you know, as a sort of a public service mm -hmm. for men, <laughs> essentially. Uh, but there's also, I think, a parallel track there that is kind of less debated, you know, where you have a lot of men who are putting their bodies, you know, up for sale, for war, you know, for sport, you know, and are equally destroyed by that experience. Some become generals, and some have PTSD and are homeless, you know, but, so the question is not, is football wrong? You know, is sex work wrong? Well, yes and no. You know, is working in a cubicle wrong? You know, there are people who work in a cubicle and they scroll all their money away and they have a great retirement. They have a nice family, they buy a nice house, they're happy. Some people work in a cubicle and they end up killing their whole family and, you know, driving off a cliff because they can't take the stress of it. So I, I think that it's too easy to put the blame on sex work for what I think is a larger cultural issue that is in every form of work. That, that's just my two cents. I really like that. Thank you so much. You have so much to tell. I really hope you pursue your stories. Because I, I, I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. <laughs> you got any other questions? Thank you. You said this world is gone now. It doesn't really exist. Mm. Would you, would you feel a nostalgia for it? Would you, would you bring it back if you could? You know, it's, <laughs> it's a funny thing because it isn't, it isn't a pretty world. I mean, this is not a pretty story. You know, there are no happy endings yeah. in the deuce. You know, it's, it, but at the same time, you know, it was important to me. You know, it made me who I am. So, I think that it's hard for you to criticize your mom, you know, or even really analyze your relationship with her because it's so primal. And in a lot of ways I feel like that about New York City, that it was kind of my mom. Hmm. You know, and, and, and it was so much a part of the adult that I later became, even after I left it still has a, a, a hold on me, you know? And I think that, you know, I, I don't like getting mugged. Nobody likes getting mugged. You know, I, I don't want to get robbed, it's no fun. You know, I would like to be able to walk down the street and, and you know, be sure that I'm not going to be harassed. But it's, it's a double-edged sword because there were things back then that are gone now. There was a feeling of a neighborhood, you know, there was a feeling of like mom and pop shops that you could go to, you know, Greasy Spoon where the guy knew you and, you know, and that, that's all gone now. So, it's just not a simple answer, I'm sad to say.
is part of that a survivor's pride for having weathered possibly a, like otherwise horrendous condition that's someone moving into it from Nebraska I don't know if I feel field. I don't know if I feel that it was horrendous I feel the, the metaphor that I always use and I don't know if you can relate to this at all Gary but like if you live if you grow up in a neighborhood where there's a lot of crime you don't feel I mean it's not that you don't feel worried I mean you do right. Right? You, but but the way I say it is like, if you imagine that you live in Africa, okay, when you go to get water, there's crocodiles, right, right? in the river, because it's Africa, that's where they live. They live there, you live there, that's the way the world is. But you don't not drink, right. you don't not cook or wash your clothes, you know, and like, yeah, you have an uncle who has one leg, <laughs> and yeah, maybe you used to have four brothers and now you have three, <laughs> but, but you don't the idea that crocodiles exist doesn't subsume every right. thought. You go about your business. Well, it's also about how you attack. I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up in South Central. You know, I grew up in the time, but I grew up in South Central before the crack epidemic, right? So when I grew up as a kid, South Central was, you know, it was it was a it was a black working class area. My my dad came from from Texas. Um, our neighbor, you know, came from Louisiana down the block, uh, you know, they came from the deep south. Folks worked in, 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 but they were part of that black migration that gets absorbed into into a heavy industry, right? At the time when, when and of course, post, before deindustrialization, all this stuff comes along. And you know, the boogeyman for me growing up as a kid was was, was 77th Street uh, Division, right? That was the, that was the, that was the cops, yes. right? And that was, those are the horror stories I heard as a kid growing up. You know, you go to, I, you know, you'd be in the barbershop or, or people wherever, and you hear about some brother getting jacked over, uh, over, over the weekend over at 77. And so, but, but that's because it's said, but it's like, I mean, it, it, I mean, you think about it and you're cognizant of it. And so, you know, and then, you know, in, in particular, you know, your parents will tell you, you know, you, you know, you, you got to be careful out on the street because you don't want to get jacked by the cops. And when we had gangs, we had the Slossons and the businessmen, but nothing like, certainly nothing like the, the, the rise of the Crips and the Bloods, which came along, you know, when I'm in high school. But, but you learn to navigate that. I get and So you're right. I mean, Keith, I think to some extent, you're right. I think it's like a survivor's thing where you didn't want, I didn't want, you know, like some guys I grew up with didn't wind up in jail. Some guys I grew up with didn't wind up dead, you know. And, and so you, you, you can't help but have a kind of, right, you have a kind of, both dual thing about it. I mean, you realize that I was kind of fucked up some of the stuff I grew up with. And on the other hand, you think, well, I also had a lot of good times. I rode my Stingray bike to the Sears. You know what I mean? Whatever. You know, and then, so it's a, it's a weird, it's just, it's just a mix. It's just yes, a balance. That's exactly what I'm trying to say there is that people, oh, you rode the subway yeah. when you were nine years old, you know, in 1978? You know, how are you still alive? I, I had some of my best experiences on the subway. I read on the subway, I write on the subway. You don't, I think that people have a tendency to over-exaggerate danger. Mm. And when you're just living a daily life where you know there's crocodiles, right. you, you live with them, they live with you, you're going about your day. And part of what we were trying to do with Peepland, you know, is to just show these kind of small stories of people just trying to get through their day. You know, they're not heroes, they're not villains, right. they're just trying to get through their day. You know? And, 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 and of course when things get out of control, it's not because anything big really happens, it's because it's just the societal forces that 
at times, because of misfortune or because of you know a, a, a misstep, get to move against you, or, or frankly, just the bureaucracy starts to unload. You know, the criminal justice system itself, right? Gets like the kids. You know, the kids. We don't we don't have a Central Park Five case per se, but we do have. We sort of represent that through the through the through the eyes of one kid who's the who's the son of one of the the people workers, and so the idea being that. Here's somebody who doesn't have the wherewithal to have a big time defense attorney or whatever. And so you just get sucked up into the system. And once the system has decided that you're the guilty party, well, of course, if all this machinery moves against you and you have no, if you don't have the wherewithal, if you don't have the money to, to fight that, of course you get sucked down. Mm -hmm. Like this, there was a kid, what, not a kid, I should say, a young man, was it, this wasn't, this was about too long ago. Um, I think he was in he was in Rikers awaiting trial. He never got the trial. I mean, he was, but he was in Rikers for like some insane amount of time where he winds up killing himself because it just was so oppressive. And it was just like it was like some bump jive charge. It wasn't nothing, you know. It wasn't you know it wasn't terrorism anywhere. So get none of that stuff. It's just the usual crap that people get swept in swept up in because you're poor and you're broke and you're black. And 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 you know, but the the, the force of the machinery moved against them. So that so. Right. So what is so what is to be feared of? Is it to be feared of the neighborhood, or is it to be feared of fucking Jeff Sessions? You know. So, there you go. <laughs> that, that's it. And I think I think between that's those... the next comic we're writing. About. <laughs> that's yeah, right. yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. The Jeff Sessions story. Good. Yeah. <laughs> the legacy. Yeah. Yeah, the legacy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, one more question. Anybody? Not. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.